that part of real estate is so fun for me. Well, it's so funny because like even when I'm when I'm laying in bed, there's definitely nights where I'll be on like Redfin, Zillow, yeah, flash, just scrolling through my phone at 1 a.m. in the morning. I'm like, right, I got to go to bed. Like, what the hell am I doing yeah. right now? I got to get up tomorrow morning. But yeah. you definitely get caught up in it. It's fun. It's an obsession. It it definitely becomes fun. It's it that's why it's it sucks you in for sure. Once especially with like. Tyler and Thompson. I mean, you guys will get the hang of it for sure. Yeah. Like, you guys are so green, but once you start getting a ton of traction in it too, it's fun. It These guys are sense. already very into it. Like when you see a good deal, I can tell you get excited. You start calling yeah. people, you start digging into it. It's yeah. fun, man. Friday, yeah. Next morning. Yeah. It's a good time. I mean, and a big part of it, obviously the money is good. It, like if you stick with it, staying consistent, but like I said, pulling people together, pulling people together is huge. I mean, it's oh, like, yeah. you know, work with like, all the different contractors, like lenders, brokers, mm -hmm. like the whole nine. I mean, it really, you really do get to talk to so many different people. And for that matter, you get to pick out and hire people too, because at different moments, there's been people that like have straight up said, thank you so much for like what you've done for my family, yeah. especially like contractors that we've kept employed. I mean, I've had two men just straight up cry. It's like, thank you so much. You wow. Never believe how much you've done for my family. Like, basically f put food on the table for me when I couldn't really find a job and stuff like that. And that's cool. And then that's yeah. like fulfilling at that point. So a hundred percent, man. And you work at such a scale, Riley. It's like, like how many homes have you flipped in the last year? Uh, in the last year, probably around, probably around 40, 50, 40 in the St. Pete, Tampa area. Uh, that's kind of all throughout from all the way down to Sarasota, all the way up North to Jacksonville. Got it. And then, um, when I moved, I kind of hammered, so I moved out from uh, Phoenix, and I started in Jacksonville, and I mean, we, I was kind of just throwing the walls on that. Yeah. I mean, we, I, I want to say we had like three or four flips going right when I got out there, and I didn't know anything about construction. <laughs> I didn't know anything, like I knew some stuff about real estate, but I mean, flipping a house, it's, it's a whole different world when you don't know. Oh, yeah. And like, it teaches you so much about negotiating. Like you're trying to hire contractors and like, I didn't have like, obviously my dad had his company, but, um, I partnered with a different guy and you, like, sometimes you're like, okay, should I try to figure this out on my own yeah. or should I be asking questions here in this scenario? So it's kind of like back and forth in your mind. But then, like I said, learn by fire a little bit Yeah, hundred and, and you kind of put your back into it. And then I looked at it like, okay, this is my business. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work out, it's my fault. Like, right. and you look, it's a little scary at times. I mean, when I moved out to Jacksonville, I was 25 years old and really just didn't, I didn't know where it was going. I was like, okay, well, I don't want to, I want to like start my own thing. And I knew that I wanted to do that. And that gave me an opportunity to basically start at 25. So at 25 is when you started. Yeah. And then let's go back to your dad real quick. We're, we're rolling. Riley Mudd, everybody. Riley, I appreciate you doing the show. Yeah. Yeah. Excited to be here. Um, so your father, tell me about your dad. Cause he was like an instrumental figure in real estate financing oh, a long, yeah. long time ago. Oh, for sure. So what they did was, uh, well, quick on my dad, he uh, started a logistics company in Chicago and his dad actually owned a logistics company too. So he branched off that, started his own thing. And when I was probably in, I want to say fifth or sixth grade, he decided to pick up the family and move out to Vegas. Mm -hmm. And it, we moved out to Henderson, Nevada. 
And we were out there for two years and he started flipping homes. And the, some of the biggest problems that he was running into is finding these good investment deals. This was 20, 25 years ago now, or I guess 20 years ago now. But um, then when they decided that Phoenix was a very similar market to Nevada. Mm. So they decided, okay, let's get up and get the kids away from Vegas. So they're not going to high school around Vegas. And Phoenix was probably nothing at the time. Now it's yeah. a major, major market. Oh my market. gosh. It's crazy. And like, it was, it's one of the fastest growing cities still. Yeah. And it's been for seven, eight, nine years, somewhere in there. But yeah. it's, it's cool to see. But then, like I said, he picked us up. We lived out in Nevada for two years and then we moved to Phoenix, Arizona. And then, like I said, he was finding that finding good deals was the hardest struggle. And there's people that obviously were flipping a good amount of homes, but it's nothing like now. Like there's so many like mom and pop shops that want to flip one or two houses. And it just, they figured, okay, let's figure out the best way to find investment properties. So what they did was, they created a business based off working with other investors that basically want to flip homes and that like they found the middle ground to give them these properties and they mm. were just going to do all the legwork. Cause if you're like, let's say you're like me and you flip X amount of homes over the past couple of years, sometimes the hardest thing is doing the networking to find the deals. So mm-hmm. they did that and figured that out about 20 years ago. And then that's what they basically call it wholesaling. So now that's what has grown to be. I mean, they worked with Pace Morby and Jamel, who are two really big, they own Keegley and two massive, like nationwide wholesalers now. And they trained them on pretty much, Jamel was a partner of theirs and they trained Pace. Pace was actually, I mean, he's got multiple, a couple hundred thousand followers on Instagram now. Is that the guy, subject to guy? Yes, today? exactly. Okay, yeah. that guy's huge. Huge, man. huge. And he uh, he actually worked for my dad for a while, flipping my dad's homes in oh, Arizona. shit, man. So he, I mean, kind of taught him a lot of those things. And they were, like, my dad's company, they were just kind of pioneers in the wholesale industry. Yeah. And then now, today, what it is, it's like everyone yeah. and their mother is trying to get into it because- it's, it's a good way to start because obviously getting into real estate can be tough. Like anyone that wants to get into it, I'd recommend, okay, get your real estate license first because mm. that'll give you groundwork. I mean, you take the test and it's not a super complicated test. Yeah, a lot of people want to know how to get involved in real estate, yeah. investing or sales with no money down. That's like right. the biggest place people want to start. Wholesaling exactly. or real estate license is always a good place. Exactly. So your dad essentially founded wholesaling is that wrong to say i'm sure it existed before right it did exist i mean it was that they did not found it but they put it to i mean they scale yeah scale right like big i mean they had was a a part of that because of their logistics company like they transferred some of those systems into wholesaling so that's he just wanted to get into real estate and that's why he started my dad wanted to flip property so they started with flipping properties and they found their biggest difficulty was finding deals. Mm. So that's kind of what made them shift to that. And then it had nothing to do with the logistics company. He sold his logistics company to uh, my uncle actually. So that just, it's actually still in the family business. So it's good. Yeah. So your dad took the cash, started wholesaling. Exactly. And then was he also flipping property at the time and wholesaling? Wholesaling. Wow. Yeah. So it just, so you grew up, in this around. business. That's oh, yeah. amazing, too. Yeah. So I got to learn about it 
I mean, firsthand. Firsthand. And right? I was I was obviously working for him too, driving houses, going to look at properties when I was 15 years old. So I've been in this thing for a little bit. Dude, that's I mean, awesome. So is it something that you knew you were going to get into after high school? So, you know, what's funny is I did not think so at all. Like really? I had done it almost because I felt like I was forced to. So I went to, uh, I graduated from University of Arizona and I was a marketing and sales major. And I thought that when I was going to graduate and start doing interviews and stuff, I was like, okay, everyone's been telling me you should get in sales, rather you should get in sales. So I'm thinking like, okay, I'll get in sales. All right, I'll, I'll just do the sales. I'll bite, I'll bite. And then I started interviewing with some companies and I was like, no, this is not for me. And then it's funny, like everyone always says, your parents become smarter again when you're 25. Right. Or like That's after so college, true. you start appreciating what they've done for you. And then I kind of looked back, I was like, wow, it'd be really cool to be able to actually work with my family's business. Cause mm -hmm. right out of school, I decided that I was like, okay, I'm going to go work for my dad for a little bit. And then I got in there and I was like, I don't want to be working for my dad for the next 20 years. He's not going to retire anytime soon. <laughs> so then I partnered up with another investor. And then that's when I moved out to Jacksonville. Amazing. So even from when you graduated college, your dad was still in the business. Oh yeah. I mean, they, they crush it out there. They, I mean, last year they probably did. They probably have like, I want to say 30 people our age working for them, just crazy lead sourcing. Like a new Western type situation. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah where so they're they just, know those they're guys, building yeah. that huge database of yep. sellers and buyers and connecting everyone. together. Yeah. So I was going to say they have a buyer's list of about 15 to 20,000 people that they send out. So, I mean, they sell property like that. It's right. crazy. I mean, they have their, definitely their go-to investors that buy properties, but I mean, that's what I was telling Tyler and Thompson. It's so important to have a big buyer's list because mm -hmm. you figure if like, let's say you send me a real estate deal. The good thing about having a big buyer's list, if it's not going to work for me, or maybe I'm too tight on capital, then I can at least move the property. I could be a piece of that real estate at least. And then I just go to my buyer's list. I send it out mm -hmm. and I'm making five to 10 grand Yeah, in scenarios. I mean, there's other ways to find deals that you can be making more money and that's really direct to seller stuff. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it really allows you to have a piece of kind of every, or gives you a chance at least to have a piece of every real estate that goes across your desk. A hundred percent. Yeah. Especially for young guys that want to get started, man. Like yeah. you, Tyler, dude, you can, you could get involved on some of the deals. Like if you found a screamer deal, you could wholesale it to someone. The only issue is what do you think about this Riley? An agent, getting it on deals like that, would that turn off investors and buyers? Would they go, eh, I'd rather you just be my broker and send me the deals. So what's good about having your real estate license is, I mean, everyone needs a home, right? So if you're doing some marketing, let's say some direct to seller marketing, what's good is like, I'm setting up a cold call list tomorrow that we're doing some texting for. And what's great is that the guy that's going to be doing the lead management, it's actually my cousin, Joey, but um, he's going to be doing some lead management for us. And he's got his real estate license. So he's going to be trying to go direct to seller. Like, Hey, what's the, mm. like, what do you need done to your property? Or what have you done in the past five years? And it lists off like, okay, I've done the roof, but my plumbing's bad. My AC is bad, whatever it is. If they have like need updates, the flooring, yada, yada, yada. But what's good about having a real estate license, like, well, I did all this work to my house, but I'm interested in selling. Then Joey, who has his real estate license, can actually flip. Well, if, you don't have an agent. I'd love to list your property. For right. You. So it's like what I was just saying is that your network, it allows you to be a part of the real estate that comes across your desk. Mm. So it's just a different way of using it. Right. And it's just important. If you have your real estate license, it's just important to always disclose that because then 
you're expected to be the real estate professional right. in a scenario. And as long as you disclose it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's kind of where it could get tricky is if mm-hmm. you're a wholesaler with a license, but yep. you're not telling people you have a license. Exactly. So then you, then you could get someone who gets really pissed off. Oh, for sure. Because, well, there, you got to think of it. So if you go to a discounted property, let's say it's worth 300, 300K, completely redone, but they want to sell it at 150K, right? Because it needs a lot of work and they're not going to be able to get it. They're not going to be able to sell it on market. They're not going to be able to sell it to FHA or conventional loans. So they have to go cash, hard money, whatever. Yeah. Um, so it kind of locks them in a little bit <clears throat> as far as like moving the property. So then if the, the person at that moment does not disclose that they're an agent, then where it gets a little sticky, the seller could go back to the agent and be like, well, he tapped in my equity. That was unethical. Mm. And then you're expected to be a real estate professional saying like your house is worth this. Right. So then that's why it's important to disclose. So you can't get in that situation, but that's really the only issue, not the only issue, but that's like the main issue that can occur. Yeah. And you want to avoid that. So if you do have a real estate license, you don't want to be tapping into people's equity and then they feel like they were treated misfairly. Cause on the other note, like as an investor, you give them an opportunity they don't have to stick 60 grand in their property. Like the roof, let's say the roof's leaking. Like they don't, they might have the capital to do the roof. So you give them an exit out of the property to sell it right now and not have to do anything. Yeah. As long as you make it clear, right. And you spell out those numbers. We dealt with that twice in the last few months. One of them, um, seller was an old lady. She was basically on her deathbed. Oh wow. Didn't have a will. They, it was like three children who somehow got a power of attorney, but it was dated incorrectly. The whole thing was a little bit sketchy from from like an overarching perspective, but the deal was amazing. It was probably a house that could end up selling for like a million two when it was all redone. They only wanted like 600 for it. I actually sent it to you. Oh yeah, yeah. For us, we were like, God, this is a great deal, but we can't buy it because it's just this weird situation where we there's going to be a pitfall if we're involved. But we can yeah. broker the deal. Like you said, Like maybe it doesn't work that you are the investor or you are the wholesaler, but you can still broker the deal and make money. Oh, for sure. And then it happened again, um, this older couple selling this beautiful home, smells like smoke, needs a lot of work. We have a certain number we would pay, right. but we can't out front just tell the seller yeah we'll give you this much for it we think it's worth this much well we really know it's worth more than that yeah so what we tell people usually in this situation if it gets a little hairy is let's list it on the open market give everyone a chance to make an offer and we'll put an offer in too so then there's like this competition sense if we're the only one acting as the buyer and we're also the broker Dude, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Right. A seller looks at the net sheet and maybe even looks at what we sell it for after we renovate it. And they're like, dude, what the, you you know, you gypped us out of however much money. It's best to just put it on the open open market and stay clean. And that helps. That helps. But the thing is sometimes um, keeping it off market, investors want it off market because it can mess with appraisals on the back end. So if I'm an investor and I go to flip a home, Sometimes it's more enticing for it to be off market because when I go to either refinance on an appraisal, let's call it a rental, like a long-term 30-year loan, um, they'll see that. And then they'll know what I put in the property, but then they know what it looked like before mm. they, I actually started the rehab. So they'll go, all right, you did the roof, you did the kitchen, you did the windows. So they know that I put in roughly, like let's say 60K. 
they will feel obligated in scenarios to protect their license and only give you an appraisal that basically makes up for what you actually did. So if you get an off-market property, then it's kind of up to them to think of what you did. Like if you go to the nines, like let's say you do roof, AC, plumbing, electrical, it's all new, flooring, kitchen, mm, bathrooms. Okay. They see it, they see what you bought it for, but then they don't see the pictures. So then they, it's up to them to guess like, oh, this guy probably put 175 grand into it. Then his mind's like, oh, this is the nicest property in the neighborhood. Instead of right. seeing like, oh, this was, he got such a good deal on this and he didn't do any work. I'm just going to give him an appraisal that makes him 130 grand right now. Like mm. it kind of, it Couldn't almost- Couldn't that go both ways though? Couldn't it, you have an appraiser that doesn't know value of so, renovations and- Well, that's the thing is that if you're, it, that can happen, but to be on the safe side, you prefer to go the other way because when you're, the bank hires an appraiser, like the appraiser works for the bank technically. So when you go that route, it just, it's, I've found on houses that we flipped and refied that it's a much safer bet to actually have off market property. But it's, it, I'm not saying it doesn't work. And like you said, there's definitely appraisers that will give you the value. Yeah. For sure. That's like as a listing agent or a buyer's agent, I always tell my associates, you got to show up to an appraisal because you yeah. have to let that appraiser know what's oh, yeah. different about that house. Well, you don't know if that's his first house that he's appraising too. It well, be. That's true. I yeah. mean, hopefully not. Yeah. But <laughs> small stuff and subtle details that only the agent or the seller or buyer might know, like, yeah. hey, this is real wood floor. This isn't yeah. a laminate. Right. Right. Like this is real helps. marble. This isn't a porcelain tile. Like little variations like that I've found can really boost value too. Well, and that's what's good. It's important that you do that for sure. Because when you're pointing out stuff, I mean, like as small as, like you said, like soft close hinges on cabinets, like yeah. something so minuscule, but it does cost extra money. Oh, or yeah. Like we were talking about literally yesterday just about um, hollow core doors or like the solid wood doors. And people love the solid wood doors because you close the door and it's quiet. Yeah. So it's little things like that, but you're spending on each door an extra 75 bucks. So oh, yeah. little stuff like that. If you're talking to an appraiser, it helps for sure. A hundred percent. Because there's scenarios like, the stuff like this. I mean, this is nice flooring, but the appraiser doesn't always know what kind of flooring it is. That's it's, our trick on this building. Yeah. yeah. So we're turning this building over today to the new tenant. Tampa Bay Gutters is calling me. I'll have to take that right now. But <laughs> we're working on another building too. So like, you know how it is when you sell a property to a buyer, you're kind of tying up loose ends and yeah. you got to make it nice for them. And then you're buying a new property. So you're dealing with, I'm sure you deal with that at scale. Yeah. Right. 40 oh, yeah. in the last year. So I'm dealing with it too. But um, yeah, like this property, for instance, our issue is going to be on an appraisal or a commercial broker that would broker this deal. They're going to look at price per square foot. They're going to look at the market. An appraiser is going to look at comparable sales on a per, per square foot basis. And rents too. And rents too. But this building is tricky because it's only about 1,500 square feet, but it's super high end. Like there's a marble wall in the bathroom. These are real French white oak floors. Everything we did cost extra money versus most offices with like a carpet flooring, stuff like that. So if we were to take this property to the market, I would probably put a crazy number on it. The reason is the quality of finish among others, but any broker or any appraiser is going to be like, this is worth probably hundreds of thousands less than what I would offer. Right. So that's kind of a trick. Like this building in particular, you have to hound the broker like, dude, this is why I'm asking that price. Right. You got to prove your value. Right. For sure. 
It's important to uh, work with the appraisers too when you're talking to them, just explaining explaining what you did. I mean, because like when you walk in, you're like, okay, this looks like the house that I just walked, but it is. I mean, it's definitely it's definitely important. And finding the luxury market is an interesting take too because it's so unique. Not Mm -hmm. every house is just like your like white shaker cabinets. That's a good point. It's very very different. Yes, it's like the market almost dictates the luxury market much more than appraiser necessarily does. Oh, yeah. It's tough for them to sometimes find value. Because, like, let's say I walk into a house, and I have a $2 million house on the market right now. You walk in, and you see a grand entrance as far as, like, let's say you walk through a 10-foot pivot door. And then straight through, you see, like, a 30-foot slider. It's wide open with 20-foot vaulted ceilings, nice fireplace, that instantly is better than maybe the $2 million house. It's kind of choppy and right. you're walking in like that's where the buyer dictates the value of the home more than the appraiser does. Cause the square footage might get the appraiser to 2 million on the janky house, but you walk in, you see the wide open layout mm-hmm. with the huge slider, cool pivot door and like awesome kitchen. Yep. Then it's the market that kind of dictates at that point. Cause a yeah. lot of the time, if you have a contractor appraiser is not going to, mess with it so much because it's two uh, two medium minds mm-hmm. on an agreed upon price exactly so that's why it's definitely important in the luxury market that you list properly it's so oh, yeah. important for the broker and the agents to pick that rather than the appraiser but i mean in your everyday standard like 250 to like seven hundred thousand dollar home it's a little bit Dictated. Definitely different. Yeah, it's way different. I think it's apples to apples in the regular market. That's mm-hmm. such a good point. That distinction between the luxury market and then like, I guess you would say the regular right. retail market. There's so many intrinsic things in real estate that people pay extra for. That's never going to show up on an appraisal. Exactly. As an example, this building is standalone. There, right. It's not attached to any other buildings. There's a parking lot in the back. Well, you're not going to see that on a price per square foot comparable basis they're just going to be looking at office space here's the price and here's the lease amount here's the square footage well this building should be x amount right there's buyers and businesses that are willing to pay more because it's a standalone office space oh small stuff like that is not going to show up in an appraisal no you know and even even extremely small stuff like i don't I don't know if we have transitions here between the tile floor and the wood. I know in the condo project we just did, we didn't do a transition, right? So the wood runs directly in the marble and it gives it this really, really clean look. Right. That's a small feature that is not going to show up on any valuation report, but a buyer in a buyer's head, they're willing to pay a little bit more. It creates a little bit more demand because of that intrinsic value. There's something that's more tied up and well done about the property. Super, yep. super small stuff like that. Those subtle details in the luxury market, honestly, are what separates the retail market versus the luxury market. You got to sure. know those small details. And that's what makes a good agent too. They can speak that language. They walk into a house as of an course. example and they see no transition. Oh, this contractor, this developer, whoever they know what they're doing. Like this house is worth, like you said, whatever the listing agent put it on the market for. Exactly. And the luxury market has so many unique things about it as well. Cause like you walk into, like, let's say I redid a home and selling it for 500 K 
what those buyers are looking for, they're excited about just the new stuff in the house. Oh, yeah. remodeling. Like they're stoked about the roof being done. Like their AC's new, their windows are new. They're not going to be struggling with opening and closing the windows. They have vinyl flooring in there. When you jump to that luxury market, they do look for, they expect those things. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's a no brainer. Like that, that needs to be in the house. Like oh, yeah. the other things that come out are like a wine cellar or like maybe an elevator or that 30 foot slider, or maybe you have like a unique Island that's 20 feet long. Like that's kind of what makes you stand out. That's when it gets a lot different. And it, that's where I think investors actually sometimes struggle because they think they can do it all, but sometimes it's better for the investor to actually shovel off on an interior designer. Cause then you become, it's, you're kind of expecting too much of yourself in scenarios mm-hmm. because an interior designer, they're a professional. And they come in, if you're going to be selling a $2 million piece of real estate, you kind of need that professional setting. Unless you're super talented. Yeah. Like my wife and my mom did the, I mean, I I don't want to say I didn't do anything. I I maybe had like 10% of the design in this this building. Well, women help. They rock it. Women help. If you're a real estate investor, get a girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. That's the first step. They help. They help for sure. But even subtleties such as the street, like we've had houses on the same street one doesn't sell for months and months and months because it's close to a larger main road. One of them sells in a second because oh, it's yeah. deeper in the neighborhood. Yep. There's so many subtleties to real estate. And I think people who are new starting out are just, they have this overarching perspective on Zillow or yep. MLS or whatever program they use. And they're like, okay, this price, this neighborhood, we're good to go. There's so many more subtleties that you only learn over time. Over time. Only learn over time. I tell everyone, I've been doing it for six years now and I've been around it for a long time and I learn something new every day. Like we had a buyer complain. So we had, it's deep in a neighborhood and the street comes to a T, but the house sits at the end of the T. So not thinking, but at night, the car's, drive their headlights into the property and then they have to go left or right. So throughout the entire night, you have lights coming into your house and there's nothing you can do about it. Even if you have blinds, like do you know- Is this after closing the bar called you back and was like, hey man. So we had someone complain about it. They went to it at night and we were under contract. It was still in the inspection period. They were doing a walkthrough and they backed out over that because they're like, oh my gosh, there's so much light. And you probably didn't even think of that. They didn't even think, oh shit. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. Whoa, like there really is so many like nicky knacky things in real estate that you learn every day. You don't think about it. Dude, my mom's been a real estate agent for over 30 years. She crushes it down in Sarasota. She yeah. works in the luxury space. Nice. And she can spot subtleties before they come up. So she's partnered yeah. with a builder developer down there, Lager Homes. They're phenomenal. Custom home builder in Sarasota. When he's looking at a lot, she'll chime in and be like, don't buy that. Yeah. Because she knows what the buyer's gonna oh, yeah. say. When the house is built in 18 months, you have to have the experience, man. You can't skip that step. That's no. the one piece of it that you can't skip. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's what's good about, like, back to what we were saying, is getting your real estate license to start out doing wholesaling. Because, like, if you decide to just jump in, let's say you're doing a six-unit property, you make a couple mistakes. It's not chump <laughs> change that you're losing sometimes, too. I mean, you walk no. into some mistakes, it's 
tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes even more than that. And just, it's not fun when you oh, start yeah. losing money and you don't have a lot going on. Oh, yeah. It's not fun. That could be a big hit, man. <laughs> yeah. The good news, though, is this market is probably the best in the entire country, right? Aren't we lucky to be as young as we are in this market? Holy oh, shit. my gosh. The growth here is Knock insane. Knock on wood, right? Everything yeah. continues. Yeah. Well, what's funny is, obviously, we talked about my dad being in it so long. And in 2007, 2008, obviously, everyone knows what happened then. But they talk about Seattle being kind of insulated in that scenario because there were so many people moving there mm. that it helped so much. So what's good about Florida is we have so many people moving here right now. So there's actually infrastructure that can support the appreciation. I mean, obviously, we're probably not going to have a 30% appreciation year over year ever again, mm. which was so unique. But with Tampa growing as fast as it is, it is a good space to be in for us. As far as real estate growth, there's a lot of people our age, like you said, moving here. Business is growing, and I, I'm excited about there. It's so awesome. Seattle was insulated during 2007, 2008. Is this something Be that you stumbled upon online, like an article, or what was your experience? So it just didn't. It actually did not dip as much as other markets, just because there were so many people moving there. So, like, so let's that say, data to me is massive, massive, because that's what I've been thinking. I've been thinking from a macro perspective. If you watch MSNBC or you're online looking at articles. One would think, okay, we're headed to a recession. Like, this yep. is not good for real estate. I totally agree with you. We're in an insulated market. I didn't even think about other cities during the last recession. Yeah. So Seattle was one of them. Yes, correct. So that that's what's so interesting about it. And that's what makes me feel good about owning investment properties here. Because, like, for instance, there's there's markets that I think could be, it could be catastrophic. Let's say, let's yeah, right. say we see 2007, 2008 again. Which, I mean, that was so unique. and Because that was real estate backed. Um, which they've gotten so strict with mm -hmm. lender requirements and all that underwriting. But with if we were to ever see a dip that bad again in the coming future, Tampa is insulated just because we have so many people moving here right mm -hmm. now. And there's so many people working now. So and many like, people. It's growing. Right. There's people moving and shaking now. Like we literally talked about before we started this podcast that there's so many people our age moving here. And that's yeah. really what drives the market. Yeah, that's like the foundation of an economy. Exactly. Honestly. It's all all those all those people, not necessarily starting out, but people in probably twenty five to forty who have good high paying jobs moving to a metro area. Oh yeah, like that base is what supports us up. Even like, dude, the University of Tampa, like none of those kids are going back north, man. No, I've had nice I've had probably like how many on the podcast four. It's funny, like someone comes in, they're young, and it's like, where'd you go to school? Oh, UT. Like it's a joke at this point. <laughs> I have probably what, how many kids went to UT at our company? Three. We've had interns from UT. Like I've talked to, let's just say 10 or 15 of these students or prior students. All of them are like, dude, no one's moving back to New York. No one's moving back up North. Everyone oh, yeah. is staying. Whereas five, eight years ago, that wasn't the case. People would come down from the Northeast, go to UT, graduate, move back home. Yep. Now they're staying here. We have an amazing base of college educated workers that are staying like you said, young people moving here from all over the country. I think one thing we are missing is a big industry. Like we need, we need a news article that's like, yo, Amazon's dropping like some huge yeah. headquarters here, or like a tech company or whatever that may be. I think we are missing a large uh, business that can that can provide 10, 20, 30,000 jobs. But I think it comes, man. I think those businesses follow the educated workers and when they look at the demographics in the next five or ten years and they see holy shit tampa has all these educated people 
they'll come. It will for sure. I yeah. agree. Because even Bill Gates buying into Water Street, like yeah. he bought in that. That was I feel like that's a big indicator because he's obviously smart money. Like he's got a bunch of guys telling him what to do oh, with yeah. money. So oh, like Yeah, yeah he might just, not even be the one that makes that decision. Yeah, exactly. You know what that's I mean? what I'm saying. It's like you and me are sitting here talking about this and like we don't have the data that they have. And right. like they are obviously tracking like we are, like, oh my gosh, like Tampa's turning into something. There's something going on there. There's so mm-hmm. many people moving here. So let's be a part of it. So he wouldn't just invest that to take the tax benefits necessarily. He thinks there's growth happening around here. So 100%. So that's why he jumped in it. I mean, I think that speaks volumes about what's happening here. That if one of the richest men in the world decided, hey, I'm putting, I want to get involved in there and be a part of this, then I think that just speaks volumes about what's happening. Definitely. How did you find the area? So I moved out to Jacksonville and my, my old business partner invested in Jacksonville and Tampa. Um, I started, I partnered with him in just Jacksonville. That's the way that we did it. So he was the capital partner and we were 50, 50 partners and I did all the work. I moved Mm. out, I was boots on the ground. So we started gaining a lot of traction and doing pretty well in Jacksonville and he was already investing in Tampa. And this is 2000, like what year is this? What was this? 2017, 2000, yeah, 2017. So five years ago. Yeah. And moved out to Jacksonville. And then I lived out in Jacksonville for about three, three and a half years. And I, like, there's nothing wrong with Jacksonville. I think it's going to be a great market. And that's why I'm actually building a rental portfolio out there and focused on doing that mm. and not so much flips out there. Out here is great for more development and flips and stuff like that. But I think the long-term game in Jacksonville is awesome. What's the market what does the market have to look like to have those two different perspectives? Like what would make a market good for buy and hold and what would make a market good for flips? So, I mean, everyone knows like the one-to-one rule um, of obviously rents. And once the market kind of gets too saturated, there's so many people and the market becomes too expensive, then rents don't make sense anymore. Mm. It's tough to actually, like if you go to, let's say property in South Tampa, you couldn't buy a house right now on the market where interest rates where they're at in cash flow. There's no mm, shot. Right. So you're gonna have to invest more capital. So what's good about the markets in Jacksonville is just the purchase price, the medium home price is much lower. Got it. So the rents are still about a one to one, even with wow. interest rates or the one percent rule. Sorry, not the one to one, but the one percent rule. Um, and it makes a lot more sense to cash flow those things why not buy 10 properties when you can only buy like three out here mm. it's not as risky so you kind of diversify one and then there's a lot more growth i think as far as like let's call it like jacksonville a penny stock more than mm. tampa is because i think tampa and st pete's are like hit a huge stride like, oh yeah we're literally talking about it for 10 minutes just now oh yeah like how many people are moving here so yeah you, we might be talking about a hundred percent increase in oh, real yeah. estate valuation over the last probably five years oh, maybe five, less 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's... Which is insane. It's, there. it's insane. I mean, it's awesome for us, but that's why I think Jacksonville is a little bit lagging, but I think it's going to get there. In my opinion, I like, I lived there. I was in there, like, there for three years, boots on the ground, working it too, and I really do think it'll get there, but it's more of a 10 to 15-year play. So back to your question is what kind of brought me out here is I think that like, you don't want to spend your young or your 20s and then your early 30s in a market that you're kind of waiting or to get there. Okay. And if you're going to be living in your younger years, like you want to be in a market that's kind of already there. Got and I it. think that Tampa and St. Pete kind of provides that a little bit more. There's a lot of, 
like there's a lot more young professionals here right now. For sure. A lot more, which, I mean, you just want to surround yourself around those people, keep you motivated, keep growing. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to connect with people for sure. You kind of grew up watching your father build out his wholesaling and flipping business at scale. Yeah. When you moved here to Jacksonville, you were like 25 years old, right? Yep. 24, 25. Learning at scale is a tough one. A lot of people don't have the perspective you do. Like you live in Tampa, but you manage how many properties in Jacksonville uh, that you own? We have what fifteen out there right now? Fifteen properties. Yeah, 15. and how many units? Single family. Yeah, there's single family, and then there's one quadplex out there. So we have a rental portfolio, or I have a rental portfolio out there with my business partner Griffin, and that's fifteen units. And then we've built a rental portfolio out here and a development mm. portfolio out here. Okay, but it's we. The rental portfolio we built out here is, I mean, they've just been like good deals that we bought almost before the market took off a little I bit. Got it. Right, right, right. To where that 1% rule might work. Yeah. But right now, it's so hard to find a rental. It's so hard to find a good rental out oh, yeah. in St. Pete and Tampa, for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Well, because there's a million people here looking <laughs> for the same thing you are. Yeah. But that, so working at scale, right? Like, you, you guys live here. Does Griffin live here as well? Yes. So you guys have to have, you have to manage that Jacksonville portfolio remotely. Oh, it's all for my cell phone. If I didn't have my cell phone, it all stopped. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, what, I'm like, do you have like one guy that's your guy? Yeah. And he manages everything? Yeah. So there's, we actually have three guys that I worked with out there. Um, and they, they've just done a great job kind of being the glue to it when I moved away. I mean, they really stepped up for us. Um, they, we've wholesaled some deals, we've flipped some deals and we have the portfolio out there as well, the rental portfolio. And they're just, they're super active as far as being contractors for us that have worked for us for about five years now, but they'll do whatever. Like I can ask them to go check out a property. Like I was on the phone with one of them yesterday and he walked three properties for me. Just check them out. Damn, like, so they pictures. do it all. Yeah. Their sales, contracting, management. Yep. And they just, what's great is that it's the relationship that I've built with them. So they know that they're going to have constant work for me. And then, like I said, like what I was talking about earlier is some of these contractors have just been so thankful for the work that we've provided for them. And they'll just take the skin off their back to do anything to help us out. So I'm like, hey, dude, can you go look at these three properties? And they're like, yeah, sure. I'll be there. Just let me know when. You couldn't do it without those guys. No. That's the key, no. right? Yeah. Like you got to have those guys that you can trust. Oh my gosh. The trust is the biggest factor. Are they on salary at all? Or how do you no. keep them? So we just, so it's per property basis. So it's easy. Cause like you almost, this is what I was saying. Who was I saying this to? I was saying it to my cousin last week. You got to look at each property when you're investing as like its own business. So mm. when you look at it, you can't confine yourself to what you're going to do with it. Like, Maybe it works as a rental. Maybe it works as a flip. Like maybe it works as a wholesale deal. You can't confine yourself. Okay. I'm going to find 10 wholesale deals in the next month. Well, that's confining yourself to finding 10 wholesale deals. Cause two of them might work as a rental. Three of them might work as a flip. Five of them might work as a wholesale deal. So that's kind of what we've learned to do is just open our book and be like, Hey, we can do a to Z, but let the property come to us and then decide what you do with the property from there. So you guys are just interested in good deals. That's it. That's literally it. Like whatever qualification that may be. That's it. I mean, literally Tyler sent us one that we're looking out, uh, out by the beaches and it's a development deal. 
And it's not something we haven't really done luxury townhomes, but yeah. I mean, we're talking about structuring that deal with some seller financing. So it's kind of just like that. I mean, Tyler's right. with us right? of like going through the whole process of A to Z. Of, okay. How can you work with the seller? How can you make it work for us? Is this a good one to piece together? Cause I was, I was explaining to them of, okay, this might work as just building three luxury homes instead of building six townhomes. So we're kind of like working through all the... That financing piece is interesting too, like especially now, right? Like oh, yeah. a deal that doesn't make sense at all could make sense in a heartbeat and a heartbeat. the seller would do the financing. Well, no, it's awesome is because there's that's what's holding up the real estate market right now because there's so many people that don't want to move. And I, um, I, I follow Yahoo Finance on Instagram and they actually posted something. In the past year, they've had the least amount of people leave their houses. There's only 1.2% of people actually moved in wow. the last year, leaving their houses. But that's because they're sitting on interest rates that are sometimes, like my parents have a 1.75% interest rate on their prime. That's it, so it, crazy. It, you should never sell that property. Never no sell shit, that property. Right? Yeah. yeah. And like rent it out, never never move on from it. It's essentially free money. Exactly. We have a listing in Sarasota. I think it's three, we just reduced it. It's like 3,450,000, something like that. I believe like a million eight is assumable at like 2.75%. Oh, yeah. So although the purchase price is aggressive, it has a pedigree to it. The home is gorgeous. It was um, very reputable builder in Sarasota, high level architect. Like it has those, that pedigree that would demand a premium price. But for a lot of people, it doesn't make sense because of interest rates. Oftentimes people pay cash and then yep. pull cash back out. If you're going to do that, you're looking at like what? 7%, 8%, yeah. something oh, yeah. crazy. But this thing has almost 2 million bucks. That's not even 3% interest. So the yeah. idea would be, hey man, buy the house, use that assumable loan, and then take that million eight or whatever that assumable loan was, put it in like a bond, Yep. cash flow pay the bank like like money assumable mortgages and seller financing can oh shift around deals very very quickly well and you can you can one get a property that like if you were just looking for a primary it's a great way to find a property that way if they're willing to do seller financing but back to what we we're saying is you can actually find rentals around here then too because then if you can find a deal let's say you wanted a skip trace you just go build a list together an entire zip code look at someone that's purchased in the past year and a half, two years, you see who's bought it. They bought in that window. Then you just send them a text or a cold call, kind of like I was explaining to Tyler, is you just hit them up, see if they're willing to do seller finance. If not, then no big deal because it's competitive right now. So they're probably getting touched, but mm -hmm. as far as marketing, but if you can get them to do the seller finance, you can make the rental work. Like you mm -hmm. give them a down payment, assume their mortgage with the interest rate and maybe give them like a 10 year and then a balloon payment. But then at, what's good about the balloon payment, they get excited about because like, okay, I can make the money 10 years from now. I don't need the money right now. Right. But then what's good about that is you can just decide to sell. So you can get rid of the property at that point. You're like, shoot, I don't have the money right now. I don't, I'm kind of capital stressed right now. Yeah. I can't pay for this balloon payment. But then you just cash flowed with a low, low interest rate for, for 10 straight years. Yeah. And then the idea as far as risk, like the idea that you couldn't pay him back in 10 years. I mean, of course, you don't think real estate's going to appreciate here in this local market well, yeah. in 10 years, right? Well, exactly. Well, yeah. here, Tyler, pull up something real quick. Pull up the line graph of rents in the country over the past 30 years. Average rents. It should pop up pretty quick on Google. I think we're insulated in rent too. I think they've leveled off they here. We've, we've had a couple apartment complexes come to this office and pitch their their 
community and they, they want us, we don't really work with renters. You know, usually it's not that lucrative in our business. It's kind of a waste of time for the most part, but I can tell they're hurting. They're, they're reaching out to brokers now trying to procure business. Is this over the past? Oh, there you go. Historical median monthly rents. This goes back to 1940 through 2021. There you go. I mean, look, at it just doesn't stop going up. Have you ever seen an investment ever go like that? Just completely. That's a good point because a lot, keep of, going up. a lot of people, when they get money too, whether it's by inheritance or a great job, sports player, you know, whatever it may be, they look at different investments. And I think nothing beats real estate, man. Nothing. Look, look at real estate over time. You're buying real property. It's tangible. You can touch it. It's not going anywhere. The trick is location. Everyone's heard that rule, location, yeah. location, location. But God, man, if you can if you can have a good perspective on different markets around the country, and you've moved, so you yeah. kind of have that perspective. Oh, yeah. But a lot of people don't. I just think Tampa's the way to go. I, I don't I can't see the market here even going down if there was a national recession. There's so much happening here. We're so healthy. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, knock on wood, obviously. Yeah. Look at, I mean, 23% increase in Sarasota. And that was, that's what, relative to Tampa. So this is all relative to Tampa. Sarasota's blown up too. Really the entire Gulf Coast of Florida. I can't speak for Miami. I know they're a little bit more volatile. Do you invest down there at all? In where, sorry? South Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, we we actually don't do much down there because we, we avoided the more, because I started off flipping home, like I said, and that just became something that we stayed away from just because the investment, the initial investment so much larger there. Like, yeah. like I explained to Tyler last week, I was saying, look, dude, I'd, I'd rather take the smaller route. Like let's build 20, 30 homes instead of doing three luxury, like $10 million or $7 million homes. Mm -hmm. Because the luxury market one is what takes the biggest hit when there's a recession. But then you also mitigate your risk because then you can slowly have buyers come in and buy. And there's different exit strategies for selling 30 properties than selling three luxury homes because you tie up so much capital. So mm. on that note, we kind of avoided the South Florida markets just because it was so much more expensive. Too oversaturated. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you figure you're flipping a home, like for instance, Fort Lauderdale, like you're the same home. If you put it in St. Pete, you could buy it for 250 K, but it's 600 K down there. <laughs> right. So the initial investment is just a lot more. And yeah. you take a 20% hit on a 600 K home being, I mean, you're losing money fast. Mm -hmm. I think it's got other issues too. I uh, we've we've seen because we're like brokers, right? Tip of the spear. We we deal with buyers every day. Seems like a lot of the people that we're getting coming from Florida has increased from South Florida. Like there's more buyers coming from Boca Raton and Fort oh, yeah. Lauderdale and Miami over to Sarasota, Naples, this Gulf Coast area. Really more than there ever have been. I would assume that's just because, like you just said, it's very expensive. It's overinflated. There's a shitload of traffic. Yeah. When we've always kind of been the smaller market in Florida. It just yep. seems like there's definitely a shift in this yeah. direction. And we've definitely been the little brother, I feel like, yeah. to those markets. But it's shifting. I mean, it is. Like there's, I've met so many people that have moved from Orlando. Right. Like, I mean, Fort Lauderdale. That's Miami. what's crazy, too. Our area is getting floridians like yeah not only everywhere around the entire country oh, yeah. but also floridians are moving here it's too. moving it's moving um i was reading something the other day that tampa is actually the second fastest growing market in the country with wow. miami as far as appreciation from the beginning of the year so miami's actually appreciated slightly more 
uh, I think I think we were sitting at 11% and Miami was sitting at like 13%. Yeah, Tyler, so look at that article. More people are moving to Tampa Bay from South Florida, Tampa Bay Times. I mean, dude, it's happening. You know, you, yeah. I, don't, I don't think you have to read the news to no. figure it no, out, right? Like no. you walk around, you, you know, you go down to Water Street and what's today? Today's Tuesday, two o'clock. I bet it's packed. I bet oh, like yeah. the restaurants are full. It's cool, just yeah, happening yeah. here, 100%. So back to your business and your portfolio, one thing that I'm dipping into with these two buildings we own, we are going to rent them both out. They're going to cash flow. And how do you perceive your cash flow with your development risk? Because obviously you aren't using your own cash to flip or build new construction because you want to use leverage, right? Right. That's super high. Do you use those apartment, not those apartments, do you use your rental portfolio to kind of offset those monthly so, payments when you develop property? No, the way that we've done this actually is with private money. And the reason why we've done that is, and my dad actually taught me this because he was in real estate back in the 07, 08 crash. And I mean- What's good is if you can pull money together and raise money, there's not a bank knocking at your door when it's a rainy day. I mean, let's say I have $10 million in one project and I raise the money with guys that don't have personal guarantees with me. So they dive in, I give up equity. So they're a part of the project then. Then I don't have the bank when the, let's say the real estate market dips 20%. The bank's not coming after me and I don't have a personal guarantee. Then they're foreclosing on my house, my car, right. like everything. Then I'm put in a bad scenario when if you have partners that you give up equity that can bring the capital together, then you're losing it together. And But there's upside because if you can raise money, like let's say I get a guy that is on the back end of his career. Worth, like let's say he's worth $150 million, right? He's just trying to invest in real estate for tax purposes, all the different benefits of it, help build something, help some younger people out. Mm. You're like, you go to him, you're like, hey, I have this property that we could build 10 single family homes on. It's going to cost X, let's say 250 a square foot to build. It's going to be 2,500 square foot homes. And I need this capital. I'll give you 50% of that deal. I'll do all the work. Mm. Your risk is gone. Then mm. you're Then you're getting good at just raising money And it's a way to be a part of bigger deals because sometimes if you're a young investor, it's tough to get money for a project. Right. Because going to a bank, they're like, okay, I need 10 million bucks. Yeah. I need 10 million bucks. They're like, okay, what have you done? I've flipped two humps. And then they're just like, okay, go kick rocks. Right. And that's where that's where raising money, private money is so beneficial. Because Mm. if you can build a relationship with guys and kind of build that rapport. Then you can tap into it and be like, hey, I need some money to float right now. I need some money right now to flip these 10 homes. I need to help build. I need. And maybe their contacts too, right? Exactly. They'll refer you out exactly. to other sources of money. Interesting. Because, well, I mean, if you go to these guys that are, like I said, back into their careers, they don't want to be working as much anymore. If they get, have their, I mean, the goal is to have your money working for you. Everyone mm. wants that. So if they can, if they have young guys going to them, they love it too. They feel like they're a part of something. And, when you sit down with these guys, because that is definitely the strategy that we've taken. And that, if you build relationships with the guys, they connect you with people, you find other deals that way. Mm. It's, it's awesome. And then they love being a part of it too. They get to check in, they call you sometimes weekly, sometimes daily, but <laughs> it's at least not a Where's bank. my money? Yeah, exactly. Pay me, Riley. Yeah. 
So, so on private money, you're not obligated to debt in terms of a, a debt service, like a payment. Right. Exactly. So some, some, it, it's very, very dependent on the investor because some investors want it for tax benefits. So if you, let's say you give up 40%, um, some will ask for a, perf- a preferred interest rate. So they get 40% of the back end. They'll come in, clean you out of the land that you purchased already. They'll clean you out. They'll put the money down and then they'll pay for hundred percent of construction. Mm. And then let's say we're building three buildings. They want to keep one and rent it out. But then sometimes in my scenario, being a young investor, I want to sell. Or if it works out for me that we can just partner on it and keep them, but then they get the tax benefits for X amount of years. Or it just, you structure it based on their wants and needs. Like if they want to sell it, then I mean, you really don't, like you get to be a part of the deal. You just kind of listen to them. Like, hey, let's sell these. Okay, let's sell. Great. We can make some money on this. Sweet. For you though, you're like, I'm young. I want to sell. Why Why would you want to sell when you're young? Well, it just depends. I mean, so obviously pulling in money early is great. Yeah. Um, and then you can kind of invest what you want and where you want to place it. Because sometimes owning property with some of these guys can be tough because then they can call the shots. I mean, they, right. they invest a lot of the money. Then they're knocking at your door. Hey, I need the money. I need to sell right now. And you're like, well, dude, it's cash flowing so much money right now. Like, why do we, why would mm, we sell? Yeah. So partnering long-term can sometimes be tough. That's why, I mean, uh, what did Warren Buffett say? You can't, or um, you never go broke making profit or you never go bankrupt making profit. So anytime you can sell and make money, it's never, never a bad day. Right. So that's kind of why I look at it. But I mean, I'm personally trying to hold on to as much property that can mm. but it's a tricky balance right oh my gosh it's, Be- because it's being battle. young you have to look at it like an accelerant like if you can buy a property fix it up and sell it and make a hundred grand yeah. well a hundred grand in your pocket tomorrow is a lot better than a thousand bucks a month yeah being young yeah for sure right so like that accelerant like buying and selling and buying and selling and buying and selling maybe in 10 years you look back and you have a bunch of money and then you can like do more long-term plays right that's the way i look at it i've done a couple different deals. Like we had a little portfolio in Sarasota that I wanted to keep. It was an HOA condo community, 11 units. My idea was like, dude, I'm going to freaking own this whole community one day. Yeah. I, I bought the first two in 2017. How old was I? I guess I was what? 25, 24. And I bought two of them at 59,000 a piece and talking about the 1% rule, they rented for 995. I paid 59,000. That's awesome. So yeah, they were great deals. And my, my thing was like, dude, I can buy two now. These two are for sale. The lady that sold me the two owns six. Like one day I'll just buy one every year from her. I ended up owning 11 over five years, rented them all out, cash flowed them. And it was great. Unfortunately, the HOA and management there wasn't the best. It was kind of a... HOAs can be tough. Yeah, it was a tricky operation. So we got out of it for that reason. But looking back, the, the profit we made on that sale... Didn't 1031 it, so got a got a tax hit. But having having that like hundreds of thousands was so much worth it at like 29 years old oh, versus sure. just I think I was netting it wasn't crazy, man. It was like four or five grand a month, which is pretty good at that age. But then again, like what are you gonna do with that? You can't go do other deals. Like I wouldn't have been able to do this deal. I wouldn't have been able to do the condo or the other office. And like there's definitely a balance between cash flow. And that immediate appreciation, like that right. forced appreciation of value add. So for you, right, you're just trying to do, it sounds like 
any opportunity that makes sense. Right. You've got the 15 in Jacksonville. You've identified different markets. Yep. What's kind of next for you here locally in Tampa, St. Pete, as far as your like flipping business and then developing, like building new construction? Yes. We're, we probably have about 50 units in the hopper right now. Amazing. We've worked, um, worked on finding covered land deals and it's funny because I, I can't say it enough, but my dad actually taught me that. He's like, what's good about the covered land place is you find property that's sitting on a zoning that is beneficial in the future. So if you need to, though, you can stick a tenant in it mm. and you're cash flowing so that for a rainy day, you at least have someone paying that mortgage or paying for your finances, whatever it is. Um, and then in the future, you can build, build and develop. Exactly. So we're doing the 11 single family homes. They're luxury houses down there on the water in Apollo Beach. And I mean, that's consuming a decent amount of our capital. Um, right. What's good is though, that if we have a covered land play, we don't have to pass up on the deal. Like, hey, like the one that I posted on my story the other day, it was, we, it was a single family home. It was three lots and one single family home on it. It got, we got it rezoned for three quadplexes. So- uh, we picked that up at that's three, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so we picked that up at 375. It got rezoned, and now we have three quadplexes at a basis of 125 in St. Pete. Amazing. So that's kind of the route that we've been trying to hammer. And to be honest with you, like the wholesaling, like we going direct to seller, but just on bigger deals, like kind of chasing the zoning, kind of chasing some of the stuff that like a little bit bigger fish to fry instead of flipping so many homes because. Flipping homes is great and it's a great spot to start. Mm -hmm. But as far as like end goal for me, it's not, that's definitely not it. Flipping homes taught me everything in the world, taught me how to work with people, taught me like everything about the psychology of real estate, the thought, like everyone, the owners, the lenders, the brokers, the contractors, everything. But it's a lot of headache for the amount of money that you can make. Like I flip 300 homes a year. It's, it's a lot, but in, Bigger deals, I mean, you could do two or three and make the same amount of money, mm-hmm. but it's harder to get in those bigger deals. So that's, that's that's a hard one though, right? Because earlier you were talking about how this market is not as good for a buy and hold, but how do you find a property with that good underlying zoning? Like I know right north of here, north of Kennedy, North Hyde Park, this area is amazing because it's all single family homes on RM multifamily zoning. Right. There's a ton of that. The problem is, you know, people want 450, 480 for a single family home. You're probably not going to get five grand a month or even four grand a month. Right. How do you cash flow those, those kind of buy and hold with the underlying zoning? Are you using other cash flow to kind of make up for it? No. So there's there with the underlying zoning. So a good piece of information is that you can actually rezone a property in a lot of scenarios that if there's a zoning that's adjacent to you, you will most likely get approved by the city to upzone that property. Like, so let's say you have your single family home and you have a quadplex next to you, but yours is zoned single family. If you go to the city, you purchase the property, right? Cause you're kind of banking on an upzoning. So you get it refinanced and you're sitting on this property. You have a tenant in there, but sometimes the variance takes 18 months. Mm. Instead of just buying it and sitting on a property for 18 months or vacant land for 18 months, you have a tenant in there now and mm. they're paying the mortgage. So sometimes you're willing to like, let's say your down payment on it 
like 25% for an investment property. It could be a hundred grand, but at least you're paying down the mortgage and mm. you're saving money. And if the variance doesn't go through in that scenario, then you can sell it, but then you didn't lose so much money just sitting for 18 months. So that that's, makes sense. So that's the play there. I mean, so you're saying even if you took like a $50 hit. Yeah. Or even if you broke even. So for instance, we have another one that's out uh, by St. Pete Beach. And we got a duplex that's zoned for five units. And we picked it up, uh, what, three years ago now? We have tenants in there on both sides of the duplex. And that's cash flowing. And then we actually had a contractor that was working on it, just doing some things. It's like, hey, right, their property just came for sale. So it's the next door neighbor that was a single family home. That house also zoned for five units. So now we've got both of them for about 240 each, but we have 10 units out by St. Pete Beach. Crazy. For five, 600K. Yeah, I mean, insane. So finding those deals, but we, right now we're building those houses down in Apollo Beach and we're kind of with the investors that I have right now, the guys that I was talking about, like kind of raising money, interest and all that, giving up equity. We're kind of waiting to see the amount of money that we make on these mm. to see if, okay, maybe we don't need to give up so much equity on these because mm. we don't have partners on the 10 townhomes up by St. Pete beach, but Hey, let's build these out. Those are fine right now. Let's, we can build those in 10 years if we want to, right? There, there's homes on there. And it works out for us because then we could just ride the appreciation of St. Pete. That's amazing. So it's cash flowing. It, we get to ride the appreciation. We get the tax benefits. We have plans ready to go. Like it's going to be an expensive building, obviously, because it's 10 townhomes. It's not, not, it's not out of our wheelhouse at all, but it's like, hey, let's just let this cash flow for right now. We own a rental. Right. Like right now it's very ambitious, but maybe like you said, yeah. in 10 years, you can take it on no problem. Yeah. Or like we said earlier in the conversation, shit happens in real estate where yeah. you make a shift. Maybe you don't even develop it. Maybe there's another developer that says, you guys bring the dirt, I'll build it, exactly. we'll split the profits. Or However he it comes in up. and goes, I want to pay 1.8 for it right now. Right. And they're just like, okay, oh, okay fine, yeah. <laughs> great, million bucks, easy. Like, it's just like, so finding those deals is so unique, but what's good about it is there's also barriers to entry on those deals because mm. there's a lot more that goes into it as far as knowledge. It's not just yeah. your basic real estate knowledge because you got to be able to know what building costs are going for, what like price per square foot, like what, how many units you can build on a property, what it takes to actually like kind of get A to Z and then there's carry costs. There's all of it. I mean, structuring everything in those deals is a lot more than just flipping oh, yeah. a home. So there's a lot more barriers to entry. A lot less people know about it. There's a lot less competition. But then what we found that is really good is this wheelhouse of building like the 10 to 30 units is you stay away from the big, big institutions. So mm. they don't, it's too small of chickens for them to go after. So they don't want to deal with it. But then someone that's just your, like I said, mom and pop real estate investor, they don't want to deal with it. It's too much risk. They don't even, they don't even understand it. Not that they don't understand it. They can't learn it. They just, there's not many people that do it. Right. So it makes it more complex. And then there's just not as many people to compete with. You kind of just take a step up and then there's so few people. What a great strategy. It's much, much different. It's like almost forced appreciation with a value out of property, but it's in the dirt. Exactly. Amazing. Exactly. That's really cool. Exactly. So, and then again, like private money on those types of deals, or are you just yeah. going for private money, private money? Yeah. And are there deals that you, that private money is not advantageous? Um, so like, that's what I was talking about is in the future is if like, if I can build those 10 townhomes myself, then I'll, mm. I'll just do it right now. It'd be too much of a capital burden for me. 
because it's going to be six, $7 million building. And I don't want to take on that risk right now myself. I've and maybe it. you don't want to take on an equity partner that would exactly. eat too much of your profit. Cause yeah. why, why deal with that right now? Cause if I, it's cash flow, right? yeah. yeah, exactly. Why deal with it right now when I can make all the money on the back end, maybe St. Pete rides up another 20% over the next 10 years. And then I'm building, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is crazy. It's a good long-term strategy too. It, yeah. it, it, it you know, as a developer, you always have to have dirt to build on, right? This almost guarantees in the future you guys have good, inexpensive, low-cost basis property to build on. Right. Like Tampa Heights right now is blowing up. There's like, blowing up. I don't know. There's there's a pretty good handful of builders that concentrate on that oh, area. Yeah. And I've been looking around trying to figure out how are these guys getting dirt because it's very hard to find right now yep. in that neighborhood. A lot of them bought 2019, yep. 18, 17. Yeah. So the idea, that's what probably they did five, eight years ago, buy these little single family homes, sit on them. And then now the market's hot. Now they're, they're putting shovels in the ground and exactly. build, building these homes. It's, it's li- literally back to what you were saying about location. Cause those guys, I mean, there's guys that own, I talked to a guy that owned about, I think 10 to 12 properties in Riverside Heights. And I mean, you've seen what that neighborhood's done. Right. He just sold those properties. Like he, like. Just cashed out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he bought them all for like 75 to a hundred grand. <laughs> Selling each one of them for 400, 500 plus in six or seven years. I mean, t- could you imagine that? Just, it's amazing. okay, I'm gonna buy 10, 12 and properties. And I bet you, if you took that to market, you'd have eight different builders willing to make a bid on that portfolio. Oh my gosh. That's the thing. Too. Well, and like even with the deal that we're structuring with Tyler and Thompson, I mean, there's ways that that guy could have just been like, hey, let's let a builder do it. I'd, We'll just sell it to them. They come and pick up my land at 300K. I bought all these things at 75. I make 225, but now I have the upside of building with them, but I don't have to do anything. Mm. So then they get profit and the builder's happy because they make profit on it. So Yeah, and they've owned it for, I don't know, how long have they owned it? Do you have any idea off the top of your head? Like three years. Three years? Yeah. yeah. So they probably did pretty good on it. And what's, I don't know, you've held it for three years. What's the difference? Hold it for another year and a half or two yeah, right. years. Right. Yeah. And, they, and for a lot of people, it's just like, it's being active with your money at that point. Then right. it's back to what we're saying. It's just sitting on your money, letting your money work for you. Yeah. And that's why the seller finance is such a creative way to work with people. I mean, it's like that building we closed on a couple of weeks ago up in Tampa Heights. We're so excited about it. Like I said, we wanted to move in and put our real estate office in there. We've had offers for more than twice what we closed for. But thinking about it, let's just say we sold it, whether or not you pay the capital gain or 1031, whatever. But it's like, I don't know, what do you do with the cash? There's not a whole lot. It's not an amount of money where it's like, okay, I can go develop all this crazy real estate. It's like, it's a good amount of money and I'm super excited about it. But there's almost more value especially because of where we are and appreciation long-term and how young we are versus oh, yeah. like, Hey, sell pocket the dough. And then I don't know. Now you're at square one with no property. It's definitely a battle at times of trying to figure out what to do with each property. But then that's what I was saying at the beginning of this is keep an open playbook. Right. For every deal that comes across your desk, like, okay, I can sell this or I can flip this or this is sitting on this land. Do or, you go into a property with multiple exit strategies in your head? Like, oh do you gosh. like to see multiple exit strategies? Yes. Yeah. Cause sometimes you get a good enough deal that you're just like smiling about. Cause then you're like, I could, this could be a rental. This could be a flip. Yeah. This could, I, this could be a teardown. I could build yeah. a house right now. And you're just like, wow, that, 
that's just awesome. Cause you make all your money on the buy. It's like, you right. can't force a deal to be good after you bought it. Like mm. it, you make your money right when you buy it. That's right. when, that's when all of it's made and you can't really force it. Cause what happens to investors is they'll be, let's say they have a bad buy on the back end of the deal. They'll start making bad decisions, trying to force a sale or force whatever their vision was on the property. Because let's say, let's say you're bought a house for 200 grand and it's worth 275. You end up putting 65 grand, which happens all the time. People miss budget every day. Mm -hmm. So now you're crunched because you're going to have closing costs on the back end. I mean, you're already in the hole and mm -hmm. you have carry costs, like depending on what you have, unless you bought it just straight cash, you have carry costs. So now you start to cut corners. Like, Oh my gosh, my budget's already 15, 20 grand above. I still got to do the bathrooms. Now you're trying to sell. You're like, maybe we don't have to do the bathrooms. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe we don't. Yeah. But you also underwrote a property at 275 with new bathrooms. So now you're trying to cut corners. Right. Now you're doubling down on your mistakes. So you're better off just sticking to your strategy, lose the money. But the problem is if you don't, then you're going to struggle selling the house because now the comps in the neighborhood, people are like, these bathrooms suck. Then you're sitting on the property for three months longer and you didn't even do it. Now you're selling at 240. You just right. took an extra 50 K loss on that. We get hit all the time for that. Cause the first place they go for the money is the broker <laughs> yeah. Hey man, cut the fee. Yeah. Riley knows a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah, it definitely, that, that definitely happens. I mean, sometimes it, it, I think that brokers get blamed more than they probably should because yeah. it, they try to act like, Hey dude, you bought the deal. It's your investment. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, but most brokers, good brokers will just be like, look, this is a long-term relationship. Yeah. Let's just get the deal yeah. done. Like oh, yeah. whatever. You know what yeah, I mean? For I'll, sure. I'll, I think a lot of brokers have that perspective. I know. For I sure. For sure. No, it's good. I mean, and so many things in real estate, it depends on your network. So oh, yeah. word of mouth so much too, because like, I was on the phone yesterday with a uh, title company that the kids moving out here and he's starting a title company out here. And it was just from a guy that I went to coffee with last week. He's like, Hey, I want you to be my buddy, start a title company. Just see if you can work with him. Mm. It's just word of mouth. And then yeah, now 100%. literally two weeks from now when he wants to meet up for drinks and it's just like, we're all going to go meet up for a couple of drinks. And it's like, it's word of mouth. You start building that. And then maybe I could work two or three deals out with them. And then right. just like that one relationship, one good conversation with someone turns into a partnership or maybe they find us a deal or who knows, man. Right? Exactly. That's, that's what's awesome. That's the thing about real estate. It's all deals can come from so many different sources too. Oh yeah. It's not just brokers really. I mean, I think brokers f can find a majority of the deals I would say, but there's so many scenarios where you could find property, whether it's someone's, aunt or uncle selling a home or whether it's someone's grandparent who passed away. I mean, there's, there's opportunities everywhere in real estate. Oh, you got to look under every rock. Yeah. For <laughs> sure. Sometimes right? you hit some jackpots under the rocks. I'd sure. imagine you have to do that at your scale because you're doing 40 a year, right? So yeah. you, you can't rely on one source. No. Oh my gosh. No. Cause you'd be stupid too, right? Cause oh then you're gosh. losing out on so much, so much. That's why building relationships is so important as far as helping people out. Like Tyler and Thompson, they're so green. I mean, just trying to give them information, help them out. And then we can work together on deals, like get them to send me deals. I'm like, Hey, I'll give you all this information on how to do this stuff. But I just want to, the inbox when you guys, I, I want the deal that you find in my inbox first. That's all I ask. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to ask you guys to, like make any less money or like make more money or whatever it is. I'll give you all my information. Like 
and I've helped them out in a couple different ways and just send me the deal first. That's yeah. all I ask. Yeah. And it's a quick decision for you. I mean, it's basically, Hey, I'm interested or Hey, I'm not. And, and then if, move and on if you're it. not, you guys, like you said in the beginning, you have a bunch of buyers you just feed it off to. Oh yeah. And then they can, and it's just the deals that I helped them out with. Fine. I was like, Hey, if I pay for the cold calling on this, just send me the deal. If I can't take it, then try to sell it. Mm-hmm. Then it, it helps us both like in that scenario. So it's a good way to build. And then honestly working with a bunch of different agents is great. Cause setting up yeah, you have to do that you have to because everyone knows a realtor right and a lot of people own houses obviously so what are they going to do when they need to sell their house they go to that agent so if you're in front of a lot of agents then they're going to come across properties that when they need to sell it it can't go to fha or conventional buyer an investor needs to come in and buy it cash offer well agents need to be friendly with other agents too oh for sure i mean that's a big piece like tyler and thompson i tell those guys all the time like get to know who's in the space oh yeah because like we said off air there's there's agents that don't deal with mom and dad buying a house exactly there's there is a there's an investor base of agents that only work with you guys yep if you can get to know them all you have to do is say hey man i got a guy he's looking for xyz do you have anything yeah, I actually do. Boom, exactly. Put it together and you guys both win. So that's and, a big piece too. And there's guys that just work strictly day in, day out with maybe one or two investors too. And mm-hmm. that's it. And yeah. They, they, I mean, they're oh, You can build a career with just a couple guys. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. You see some agents absolutely crush. Like the couple of agents that like work with my dad's company out in Arizona. I mean, they make big money and mm-hmm. it's like, they're just like, two or three guys and yeah. they, they just work directly with them and they crush. Like it's impressive, but obviously they're, they're go getters, but oh, yeah. I mean, they definitely do a great job and just focus on a couple things and just nail it. And that's it. I mean, it's important. I think as an investor, it's important to have a select group of agents. Oh, for sure. Because if oh, you, sure. if you need something negotiated on your behalf or if you need to sell something you don't want to pick from this huge pool where you might not have a relationship with the person that you end up picking like you definitely want to have like your core group of dudes yep for sure i would say that depending on your threshold of capital i mean 10 agents can be more than enough to find you the deals to keep your portfolio full of your entire life Mm -hmm. i mean if they're actually hard-working agents and then you can in return make them enough money to keep them busy their whole entire life. Oh, yeah. So that's the great thing about real estate. It's like, that's why I love it so much because you pull so many people together. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. Just through one transaction, you figure on the front end, you have the broker, you have the agent, you got the investor. So many people. So many people. It's crazy. And they all have to get fed. Yeah. But that's what's awesome about it. They all do. They all right. do because the title company, the lender, the broker on the back end, the agent on the back end, the underwriters, like the whole nine. The whole nine. And then two happy customers, a buyer and a seller, hopefully, (laughs) right? So when you first started, Riley, did you have to swing a hammer ever? Did you start at that level or did you go into it with a sense of scale and get multiple projects going at one time? So that was the whole goal. I mean, I I tried- That was the goal going into it and moving here. Of just going at scale right away. It's only worth it if I move to Jacksonville, if we go at scale. Otherwise, mm. I don't want to move away from my family. My whole entire family's out in Arizona. And I moved to Jacksonville. I did not know anyone. I'd been there one time and it was the month before just to check it out. And I was like, I'll do it. I went out with my business partner and we were out there for literally the weekend. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And 
made the jump. And what was, was the play? I mean, you're going on Zillow, finding homes on the market. So that was good is what well, we, we did some marketing. So we've actually, um, we did a lot of foreclosure deals, which is great. I was driving the properties day by day, um, kind of checking them out. And we made, we made some great money because there's some people that, so what you have to do is, um, there's a website in Florida that you can go on to and you deposit the money and then you bid on the house. It's like any other auction, but you bid on the house, but you have to have the funds the next day. So there's at times where a lot of these people that are investors don't have banks that can actually fund that quickly. That's why it's good to have private investors. You're like, mm. hey, I just bought a $150,000 home. I need the cash by tomorrow. And what that does is you kind of eliminate barriers to entry at that point because there's not a ton of people that can come up with 200K tomorrow. Mm. I mean, it can't, even if it's a bank, it's hard to pull strings that quick. So it allows you to actually get some deals. I mean, there, there was a couple of deals that we did uh, through foreclosure auction, we buy and turn around, maybe paint the house, and we're making 70 grand, like, quick. And it's crazy. Like, literally turn around and sell it in 25, 30 days. Wow. And it's just because some people can't do that. And then there's times where you have to buy it sight unseen, so you don't really know what's inside, but you're like, okay, as long as it's not burned up inside, right. basically, then we'll be okay on this. Like, we're budgeting, like, the, like a high-end right. rehab here, but as long as it's not falling down inside, we'll be okay. So, I mean, it's exciting. I mean, it's fun, but it's definitely, there's definitely moments where uh, it, gets, it gets risky. I actually want uh, Tyler to pull up a property that we did. This was one that we did in Jacksonville. This is one of the biggest properties I've done. It's, uh, it's on Zillow, and it's uh, 3106 Julington. J-U-L-I-N-G-T-O-N, Creek Road. There it is. Yeah, so I don't Sold know. Sold for 2.5. Yeah, so I don't know if I'd paint the house to save color again, but you should have seen this house before. So so did you sell it for 2.5? Yeah. December 21. Yeah. I mean, what did you pay? We bought it at four fifty, bro. What? Yeah, what? <laughs> dude. Yeah, this is a riverfront property. So this slider is twenty four feet, and then there's the pool back there, and it's on St. John's River in Jacksonville. Okay, assuming you guys dumped a lot of money into this, right? Uh, yeah, we we dumped about a million into it. Mm. So I mean, it was obviously pretty good profit, but this, I mean, this house taught gorgeous, me, great work. Taught Beautiful. me so much about real estate. It was was this your largest deal at the time? At the time, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was it was it was stressful to say the least. I mean, this this house put me through it. Now, how early on was this when you had moved from to Jacksonville? So this was about this was probably a year and a half in. So right? you took on a huge project huge. like this a year and a half in. Was two your partner in, like, dude, this is not the move? Like, oh. like how did that dynamic work out? So my this was this was definitely a stressful time. So I <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, we should buy this deal. I'm all like jazzed up on it. He's obviously putting the money forward and he comes out and sees it and just goes, Holy shit. And I'm like, what? He's like, I'm just trying to figure out how we're not gonna lose a hundred grand right now. And it's crazy because it needed so much work. But then at that point, I was like, oh, shit, I got to put my back into this. Like, I don't want to I don't want to do this to someone that like put so much faith in me and trust in me. And I'm like, I can fix this. I'm like I've at that moment had flipped about 30, 40 homes and we definitely accelerated as time went on about how many homes we were doing a year. But at this point, 
I'd done nothing like this. I mean, mm. it was it was a lot, a lot of work. On that first deal, though, you got you said you guys moved to Jacksonville and knew no one. Like the first house you bought, I'm assuming you're the one literally doing the paperwork and buying the home oh, yeah. and checking it out in person. And oh, yeah. Then that first contractor. Like, how did you find that first contractor? Um, so he had, uh, my old partner had somewhat of a contractor base out there. Um, we actually work with one of the guys still, but that's it. I mean, we can, I mean, contractors turn and burn pretty quick. Mm -hmm. It's just like with any industry, uh, the turnover ratio is kind of big because contractors, I, I always call it glorified babysitting because <laughs> I mean, it can be tough sometimes. That's but, a great way to put it. Yeah. I mean, it's construction's tough at times because I mean, everyone's going to tell you they could do it in a year when it's going to take two mm -hmm. and then they can tell you do it for a hundred grand. And it's going to take 200 grand. Right. Like that's, that's the nature of the industry. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of just word of mouth. What's good is asking other contractors. Like, let's say you go to AC guy, right? Ask him for a roofer or mm. a plumber. Don't ask him for the AC guy because that's competition. He's not going to give you the AC guy, but he doesn't do plumbing. So ask him for the plumber because a lot of these guys don't do their own marketing. They don't do their own, like, they don't put their sell, their website. Some of these guys don't do any of that. Right. And they all just have word of mouth. all word of mouth for these guys. So that's, what's important. You go to these guys, go to your roofer, ask for an AC guy, go to your kitchen guy, ask for a tile guy, go to your flooring guy, yeah. carpenter, like yada, 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 so on, so on. But that's how you find good contracts. That's how you did it. So you just built this network basically from the ground up. Yeah. All word of mouth and literally just started from scratch. And that's wild. Dude. It was, it definitely, there was some long nights of like, I can't imagine stressful nights. And, and it sounds like within the first year, year and a half, you had already done 20, 30, 40. I mean, yeah. you were cranking them out. Yeah, for sure. And it was good because obviously it's not, it's on my hometown. So I didn't have the, like the ton of distractions. So I cannot, over the past five years, I've learned more in my life than I did the first 25, 100%, like not even close. Like going through business over the past five, six years, I learned a hundred times more than I did in school. Mm. It's not even close. Yeah. Like it's literally not even close. It's that hands-on experience. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it, it really does teach you so much. Obviously schooling gives you a good foundation and it shows that you can get from A to Z, get something done. But other than that, it, I mean, doing stuff, being out in the real world, it's, <laughs> It's, it can be tough times. No, it's nothing not. can replace that real world experience. Exactly. That's for sure. And you're doing it right now. I mean, you, yeah. you deal with people day in, day out. You know how it is. Yeah. I mean, talk about a people business, real estate, brokerage with associates under you. That is a people business. Yeah. Feels like I'm running a daycare sometimes. Well, <laughs> well now you are. <laughs> I know, for real. But, Plus investing too. That's, that's what's interesting is... And, and you're doing something similar where you're, it sounds like you're starting to operate, not a call center, that's the wrong word for it, but an operation that sources leads for you, right. where you're directly involved and in overseeing those right. callers, right? So what what has happened is our, our portfolio has basically outgrown me in a sense that I can't do it all anymore. I used to, when we were only flipping like a couple houses at the time when I first moved, we, we got up to six or seven homes and it felt like so much at the time. Right. But then you start to get better at your job and start to like, you become more efficient as you learn. You're not sitting on like some s small decisions. It doesn't take you 20 minutes to make one anymore. It takes you a second. Mm -hmm. So you save so much time, but then, then you become so efficient that you need to rely on other people. So then that's when you start to outsource. And that's basically what, I started to do relying on guys like your brokerage, the guys at your brokerage, just finding deals. Like I can't 
be out looking for deals every second, but the guys in your brokerage can't because right. they're, they're agents and they do a great job talking to people and they do basically do it for me and I just pay them for it then at that point. So is that what you're focused on, Riley? Is that what's next for you and your business is like scaling, going wide? Yeah, exactly. Do you have ambitions to go outside of this market and do this on a state or a national level? So that would be something that I would make a decision to do that based on where we're at it probably three to five years. So mm. we have a good amount going right here that my time and my obligation to the investors that we have right now wraps me up in that scenario that I probably have to be here or I could, I could outsource it and try to grow there. But we're so focused right now on learning this market. And I'm still, like I said, still learning every day. And I'm still so young in my career. Yeah. I'm only five years in. You know what I mean? Right. No, it is. You feel yeah. like you still have so much time left. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to learn as much as I can. And then if I decide to go that route of building a bigger company, I don't think I'd really get bigger than 10 to 15 guys. Because I think, or men or women, not 10, 10 to 15 people. people but yeah. yeah. But the point is that I don't, I don't think it really needs to be bigger than that to run a huge company, a real estate company. It really doesn't like you need your, like what does your dad operate at? Like how many people does he have? And they did, oh man. I mean, I think in one month last year, I think they did around 200 wholesale deals and that, <laughs> yeah, that's ripping money. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I, and it's just rely on people. But I, I want to say they only had 15. That's wild. 20. Wow. Yeah. And then they, they have their, uh, hard money lending business. And it's like four people, five people. Wow. And it's, it's just, they've done a great job keeping it thin. And it's really taught me a lot that you really can grow such a big business and just rely on people that are very efficient and good at what they do, but then pay them for it. Mm. If you're going to bring them in, make sure that they're getting paid for bringing that in. Like if you have a portfolio that's producing you a ton of money, they see it. they see what kind of money you're making. So it's important that if they're going to grow or want to stay around and you teach them that they get paid for it as well. Cause yeah. they're not a lot of these people that can actually produce, they're obviously not dumb people. So to keep them around, they get, you have to pay them. And yeah. it's, that's the way to grow though, is keeping those guys around and then kind of going from there. Everybody's got to eat. Yeah. Well, dude, it's three 30. I don't want to keep you from your girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. This was an amazing experience. I mean, yeah. you're, uh, it's, it's so wild to me that you moved here with the, with the goal to immediately scale. A lot of people start off with that first flip and they're literally like swinging the hammer themselves and they're doing the work themselves. And you can kind of tell oftentimes, but, but it's, it's, it's interesting that because of your dad's perspective, you knew like scaling was the way to go. Yeah. It was kind of just make or break for me. Yeah. I was moving out knowing that I needed to do that and I was betting on myself. And if you can't bet on yourself, who are you going to, you're going to rely on someone else for the rest of your life. So I wanted to look at it that way that I was going to make it and there was no other option basically. Right. So yeah. that's, I was like, I'm doing this and I'm not going to do it slow. Do or die. Yeah, pretty much. And your partner's still here too, which is awesome. Yeah. You guys have worked together for probably going on what, six years now. No, my other partner, the financial partner is actually in Arizona still, but mm. my new partner, my buddy, we partnered up about a year and a half, two years ago. I met him, right? Yeah. Griffin. Yeah. Yeah. He's a nice dude. Yeah. You guys great. are both tall. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're both like, I don't know, 15 feet combined. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. All right. Well, Riley, dude, you're the man. Yeah. I appreciate it. Sounds good, brother. All Thanks right. for having me. All right. Bye everybody.